0: the Thinking God podcast. Uh, I'm going to jump right in today. I, I met my guest today almost 30 years ago. Uh, I know I saw him with his band at the 40 Watt in Athens when they just released Driving the Nails, and then a couple years later, I had a chance to chat it up with him at Cornerstone Festival up in Illinois, and a couple times saw him after that, and saw him up there, and then fast forward another two, 20 years or so, hosted a house concert for him. There's a reason, uh, it's because this guy really has something to say, and is one of the the great singer-songwriters are still around today. Um, Bill Maloney joins a group of singer-songwriters who are part of that this generation's answer to Woody Guthrie by way of Bob Dylan and a few others. With 75 albums over three decades, Bill has produced some of the finest songs over those years, and somehow he's done it without ever gaining the recognition and sales as befitting this great music he's put out and never really been able to to generate the coin necessary to get him out to even more places in the public and so more people who find out how good he is. Um, he's been forced more than once to sell guitars and other musical gear to continue his prolific call to write and sing the songs of every man. The critical acclaim has been overwhelming over the years. Uh, I'm going to read uh, Rolling Stone said once of Bill Maloney, Bill Maloney has remained fascinated with the shadowy emotional toils and struggles inherent in the American experience exploring the gray thin line between hope and hopelessness with songs that are alternate from careening scorchers to more plaintive folkish material, compelling and insightful with lyrical honesty, vulnerability and bluntness, not seen since Mariana Faithful's broken English or Bob Dylan's blood on the tracks. Melanie portrayed himself as a redeemed criminal, a weary saint who was only too aware of his faults and shortcomings. I don't normally read stuff, but that was a really good and a really good comparison to Um Bill's mind is always at work. Uh, To prove that, after our interview, he got back in touch with me and asked that I make it clear that while he enjoys expounding on his faith and talking about it, he is no theologian. He is a songwriter who believes it is a deeply hallowed and sober thing to presume to speak for God and who says he's on the same journey as everyone else. And as a songwriter, he tries to call it as he sees it from the heart, particularly when those aspects touch on issues of faith and belief. Um, He recognizes that we all wrestle with those bigger issues of life, death, love, mortality, from cradle to the grave. And in this interview, he's just tried to be honest with my responses. I think I caught him off guard sometimes with some of the questions, but he did a great job chatting it up. Uh, Therefore, many of the deeper life issues that we spoke about are things that he said he'd wrestle with for decades, but his own inner uh, wranglings and wanderings are not conclusive, and he's not trying to tell anybody. He's he's speaking (laughs) ex-cathedra. and that he wants to remind everybody, as I said, he's not a theologian. He's just spent his life trying to consider elements of faith. And I am glad I had the opportunity to talk to him, and he had the opportunity to talk about his work and his faith and how he continues to contribute uh, to the great musical lexicon. I think it's important to note I did catch up with Bill at his home out near Santa Fe uh, after I confused mountain time with Pacific time, so uh, we picked up the conversation right there. Greg, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Sorry about the complete time screw-up. I, I just... I get,
1: man, man mountain, mountain time, you got to look at the map and just say, why does that little sliver get its own little time signature, you know? But it but it does. But it is the Rockies, and, you know, things move a little slower out here. So, yeah, there's one hour. To, I have to remember that when I'm calling my son, who lives in, in Los Angeles, that they're an hour behind us. Uh, so. Right. All right. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, but nah, no harm. I'm, I'm not really doing anything. I've set up mics to start recording. That's about it.
0: Wow. That's, that sounds like probably part of your daily process, right?
1: <laughs> More or less. Yeah. I, I you know, the studio is not huge, but it is a little home studio and I've been able to, you know, over the years kind of figure out how to use my sort of my audio gut level instincts about what sounds good and uh, and just kind of go with that. You know, I wasn't really ever trained to be an engineer. It's something I really learned. Kind of late. I was. I was. We made. We made a couple of albums. The last two records that we made that were like big studio with all the, the high end gear, were um, uh, the glory of uh, the power of the glory, and amber waves. And we did those at a studio. Actually, it was a student studio, but it was still a university studio and well stocked up at St. Francis University in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Huh. So, we went up there and made these records. And the kids were doing the engineers. It was sort of part of their project, you know, but we had all this great gear to work with, big compressors and fantastic microphones and whatnot. And the funny thing about it is, is you know, we we, we laid the tracks down. Jake and Kevin were part of it, so it was kind of like a vigilante's reunion. But I actually like the – and my, my wife, Mariah, actually pointed this out. She said, I, I think that the stuff you're doing on the little 4-track WPA and the 16-track uh, – uh, Zoom, they actually sound better in the home studio. There's an immediacy and a warmth there that I don't hear in the other room. And I went back and listened to it a little bit more, you know, critically. I think she's right, and and I said, well, it's just because I I get to use my ears here a little bit more when there's when I'm, I'm wearing all the hats. I'm producer, an engineer, a performer, and all of that. So I just, you know if it sounds good, then I just trust my gut and go with it. And, uh, and then we have a, a friend of ours over in uh, Florence, Alabama, who does a great job at mastering the records. So that adds another, you know, 20% of, you know, sonic goodness to it. And that's kind of what I do. It's a, it's a cottage industry, but that's the that's the commodity, so to speak. You know, yeah,
0: making it, it didn't seem to slow Les Paul down very much, just having a little four track sitting
1: there. <laughs> well, there you go, there you go. That's a that's a really good point. He just used his ears, you know. And I grew up listening to, you know, twenty four track two inch tape records. You know, whether it was you know the Beatles or Cream or Hendrix, and it's just like, well, that's that sounds like where I'm going with that sound. That and that sounds like that room. And those drums sound good. And, you know, there's that whole debate going on. It's been going on for almost 30 years now about what's better, you know, tape or digital. And I mean, there's there's pluses to both. I think you know, the, the digital world is it's much much easier to hit, um, you know, uh, overdubs and things like that than it is with two inch tape. Uh, if you're having to you know enter, insert something, I mean, it's it's hard to beat that. But the other side of the equation is so many of those early records. If you if you look at like Rolling Stones top 100 records of all time. Almost every single last one of them was recorded on two inch tape in a big room. you know nobody was recording in a barn or an outhouse you know in Appalachia or anything like that you know they were They were big, big rooms with big microphones and you know German mics and you know Neumanns and Royers and all that kind of stuff and Those are the records that have made there's a reason why those records are great. One of the components I think is the audio side of it. And the other component I think is that I think just people wrote better songs back then, yeah, as far as th- the pop pop rock thing.
0: A friend of mine just uh, not too long ago took me over to the Quonset Hut in Nashville. I was up visiting, and we were looking at all the things that were recorded there. You know, Nashville Skyline was recorded there, and all these things. And you do yeah. kind of get a sense. And that's a strange room too. But
1: uh... yeah, I've I've never been in that room.
0: But uh, it, it just, you know, there are rooms that are that historic that just speak to you. But you're right. I, I think the bottom line, what you just mentioned there, though, is uh, the songwriting and, and the, the artistry that surrounds it sort of overshadows whether you're on tape or digital, really. If somebody is exceptionally good, nobody's going to say, wow, that would have been better if they'd been on a two-inch tape <laughs>
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that's right. I think that's right.
0: And you can get Neil. You can get Neil Young kind of out there. Remember when he, the story of him going out on his boat and saying more barn because he had them coming from the two different places.
1: Yeah, Graham Nash actually checked off on that recently. I noticed <laughs> in a story. You probably saw it too. He said, "Yeah, it's 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 definitely true." He took Graham out to hear Harvest, right, which hadn't come out yet. And uh, it it was funny hearing Graham talk about it. I, I, I'm telling you what you already know. Well, but, I'm glad to know that you know, somebody
0: confirmed it because I just always heard it was like a legendary story. I didn't know it had been confirmed. That's awesome.
1: No, Graham said it, and and then Neil confirmed it about a month ago. He said, "Yeah, that's that's exactly how it happened." Because Graham had come out and said, "You know, I just thought we were going to go into Neil's studio and he was going to boot up the record right there, and we were going to listen on some playback speakers." <laughs> Instead, we got in a rowboat, <laughs> went out in his lake on his ranch, and. And, uh, he had his technicians, you know, pushing it left and right. He had one whole PA set up on one side and then another PA set up on another, and, you know, he was trying to get them balanced, more barn. Right. Uh, it's brilliant. It really is brilliant. It, it, Neil has done everything. I mean, I love him, even though I think he's made some really weird records and right. some, you know, substandard records. Um, I would have loved to have heard that uh, that record that he did with Lanois. I think it was called Noise. Mm-hmm. i would have loved to have heard that with some real bass and drums in it but instead he was just in there thrashing away on a, a big hollow body Gretsch, i think and that's just neil it's like i'm just gonna i've got the songs here we go you know and he knocks it out and there it is but anyway i, I love his attitude as much as anything
0: it's like you know you, you the way you mentioned it made me think about you know i, I just there, there's no way i can overstate how much i like bob dylan and uh the greatest songwriter, at least of our lifetime, and he's wanting to do all these covers of Frank Sinatra and all this stuff. You get to yeah. do what you, you get to do what you want to do at some point, you know.
1: No, I, I know. You're talking about the triplicate record, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Now that's yeah. supposed to be better than the last one. That last one, I just kind of shook my head when I listened to it. I, he did one right just before. This is the second in a row of covers. Yeah. But, uh, yeah,
1: I, I don't know. I, it's funny. I mean, I love Dylan. I love the early stuff and the. I, I mean, I sort of include the stuff you know that he did up in. Uh in New York at Upstate, you know, with with the band. I sort of put that in the middle period, but it's hard with Dylan, I mean, because what's the middle period? I mean, in some ways, chronologically, that's actually part of the early period, too. So right. he's just been doing it for so long. I just kind of lost the interest when people, because, I mean, he's got Columbia Records. They've taken great care of his image. They've taken great care of his legacy. They're always, you know, rooting around through the archives. I don't know how much Dylan is actually hands-on involved with the, You know, with the profile audio and image wise that he gets. But I think, you know, some of those guys at Columbia, like Steve Berkowitz and some of his PR people, are very on top of of making sure that he's, you know, he's there, you know, he's he's out there in the in the commerce world. Um but I don't know, I may be wrong. I know he does interviews once in a while, but he's he's a very private individual and I appreciate that about Dylan a lot. I just kind of found, you know, people were sending me his records like uh, Modern Times and I I just didn't I didn't care for it. I just thought, you know, and he's a great lyricist, but the the music that he's he's wrapping it up in does not sound very innovative to me. It doesn't even sound really cutting-edge anymore. Um, so I, I kind of lost interest in where he was at.
0: Well, Dude, to me, he became, I don't know, and, and, and you know, he's... Uh, no
1: offense, because, I, I mean, no, you of welcome that. To, gain, to gain say anything that I say. These are just opinions coming out of me. That's and true. I
0: had a chance to talk to him after the Slow Train Coming album. He was in Knoxville, and we actually got snowed in after the concert. I was supposed to have a thing. Oh, so I got right Knoxville. on. Oh, yeah. But he. You, you think about those albums, though, um, you know, and then even on some of the albums like you're mentioning, you go through it and you realize he's uh, he's Willie Mays and Hank Aaron late in their career. If you make he, he, just when you think he's he's done, he, he hits one out of the park. You know, sure. there's a song or two in there. I mean, think about songs like "On Desire," "One More Cup of Coffee," songs like that that are as good as anything yep. he ever did.
1: Yeah, I love the Landwar records. I just wish they weren't 10 years apart. I thought "Oh Mercy" was great and uh, "Time Out of Mind." You know, mm-hmm. I thought that was great. I thought, God, that's just. Insane. Grant. Those are great songs. They're all great songs.
0: And he's he's re- earned the point where he didn't have to be a road warrior, but he never goes home. The guy's on the road all the time. I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, that's true. So you got you got to chat with him. Huh?
0: I did, man. It was fun. It was really interesting. Yeah, was, that was an interesting. <laughs> what did event. you ask him? Oh gosh, that was nineteen what eighty maybe? Uh, well,
1: yeah, it was right yeah. after his conversion, right. wasn't?
0: Uh, We actually, strangely enough, since we're talking, we we talked about Keith Green, because I had been down to uh, Last Days back in the day and done a little short story on them for a magazine, and um, Uh we talked a little bit about that, because he he played Harmonica on one of Keith Green's albums, if you remember, that was an odd... And Dylan playing harmonica it's still hard to process. <laughs> yeah,
1: although his first gig was as a as a harmonica player, right. as I
0: understand it. And we 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 just you know um, it was it was just a quick. He was he was not given you know the uh, song and dance man kind of answers. He was pretty pretty straightforward and pretty cool. And the band was in there, so it was everybody kind of sitting around chatting it up because it was they couldn't do anything until they got all the snow around from, away from the bus. So it was supposed to be like fifteen minutes, but I was in there for a pretty good while. So it was nice, but. Um, I want to talk about all the years, we're talking about years, uh, you've got, gosh, like 30 years in this, and I was kind of wanting to get into it with, how do you think your approach to songwriting has changed in the, those past years, Bill, and over like three decades?
1: Well, you know, when, when we first started out, the context for me starting out, I, I, I grew up playing drums, like as a young, young kid, even before I was in my teen years, really, I was playing drums. And I never thought I was going to play it professionally, but my dad, who was a semi-professional drummer, he was a chemist by trade, a research chemist. We lived, we grew, I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, started playing drums, and like I said, you know, my, my salvation, quote so to speak, was a, a dusty old basement with a stack of wax. You know, I was listening to everything I could and trying to emulate it. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, after Ringo and Charlie Watts, they, those were my big influences as a kid. You know, one was a groove drummer, and, you know, the other guy, you know, Ringo was very, very innovative, you know, kind of brought in elements of jazz and orchestral stuff to the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Where I loved all of it. I loved all of it. Never thought I would play guitar. Didn't start playing guitar until after i had been a drummer. When the Athens music scene first started cranking in, like, you know, 1980, I, I hired on to play drums in a number of bands. And, uh, you know, dr- drummers are sort of halfway taken seriously, and then the other half, it's like, uh, well, you know, let, let the real creative people. Anyway, I started playing guitar. And I and I, a friend of mine lent me a four-track. This was back in like 1984, 85. And I wrote probably 40 songs that year. I'm not saying any of them were worth a flip. I'm just saying I wrote them and I recorded them. And I, you know, had these two friends at church that had played in these really like three-set-a-night you know, cowboy bar uh, bands, and they were brothers. They were a bass player and a drummer, a guy named Lee Moody and his brother Scott Moody. And Lee and Scott were were my rhythm section. We went to the same church, and you know, I was still you know eye glued to the fretboard because I only knew five chords, but by God, I got to get them right. I wasn't singing. Uh, Lee, Lee was doing the singing. So we had this little band called Bed of Roses. Once again, probably wrote over a two- or three-year period, probably a hundred songs. Not saying any of them were any good, although I'll go back and listen to some of the old tapes, and they're, they're actually really good. They're, they're a little long. They could have used some editing. But that, that was my, you know, getting my feet wet. And over the time, you know, by the time I got to Vigilantes of Love, it was just feeling very confident about standing up in front of a room full of people with the least number of variables, a guitar, a rack harmonica, and a song. And, um, you know, we had an accordion player, but we had a number of other little players who would, uh, you know, uh, kind of sub in and out. We had a great mandolin player named Bill Holmes, who was just an exceedingly great musician. Athens is full of really good musicians. So by that time, we're talking like early 90s. Well, anyway, we start packing out, you know, clubs in Atlanta and the small clubs in Athens, and we got noticed. And uh, we made Killing Floor with with a grant from Fingerprint Records. Uh, Pete Buck produced that. Mark Hurd was also a producer on that record. And the next thing we knew, this was like 92, we were on the national charts as kind of being a band to watch, an indie band, band to watch. Um, You know, folk rock. And the funny thing about it was I was actually really happy about it then because the the sort of uh, Christian veneer, hadn't actually come to the surface, even though that's my faith. It's not my agenda when I step up behind a microphone. I'm not there to, quote, get you saved, if, mm-hmm. if you'll follow me on this. Um, and there's a reason for bringing that up early on in the conversation. Anyway, fast forward to South by Southwest 92. We, we play South by Southwest, I guess it came up in March of 92. And we and Capricorn Records was there. Phil Walden, you know, the whole Alden Brothers of the 70s thing. I mean, they signed every Southern rock band you could imagine, except for maybe Leonard Skinner. And uh, I think Phil actually regrets that. I think they went to MCA. But Phil signed all these bands, and the label had its run, went to crap, and then reinvigorated in the early 90s in Nashville. And this is like 92. Well, we got signed and made Welcome to Struggleville, and that was a bullet of a record. There was a fledgling. Um, radio format called AAA, it stood for Adult Alternative Album, meaning they didn't have to play just the single, but they could go deep on the record. There were about 100 of those stations in the U.S., Greg, and we were in medium to heavy rotation on almost every single one of them. And they were located mostly in metro areas, you know, so all of a sudden places outside the Deep South, you know, you know where there was Cleveland or Philadelphia or Boston or New York or Chicago, we were kings, or at least we were in the same playlist as bands at that time, like Counting Crows and Wallflowers and Cracker. The issue for us with Capricorn came down to we weren't selling lots of records because AAA is not known as a format for selling records. Heavy rotation on a AAA station might be five times a day. Heavy rotation on a Modern Rock station is more like 10 times a day, i.e. like 99X in Atlanta at the time. We did not make the transition from AAA into Modern Rock format stations, even though I think Struggleville would have been a great record to do with, I think it would have happened had... Capricorn released some funds to get us on MTV. Everybody remembers MTV was actually breaking bands back in the mm. day. But let, me, let, me,
0: let, me, let me say one thing here. I want to pause and mention that. Yep, yep. Your your first, I mean, driving the nails and jugular killing floor and and welcome to struggleville. You covered yeah, yeah. such a gigantic uh, leap of of, of sound
1: and we went we went they, from being a little a little you know duo folk band to kind of a folk rock band to a big you know, uh, indie rock
0: band. Well, I saw you at the 40 Watt and uh, it had to be late 80s or something. And uh-huh. I'm, my point was going to be that, yeah, I mean, Struggleville was super and polished too, but those other records were strong too. And it's almost, if somebody listened to it and didn't know, they would be stunned to know that you could put out Killing four and then Welcome to Struggleville, you know, because you had such two tremendously strong records that covered such a massive, uh, uh, you know, wet, bre- breadth and width of... of of sound and sonic and topic and you know it's just incredible
1: I agree that is, is kudos to the band though the people who were actually hired on at the time to play uh, Newt Carter who who died uh, last year um, it was the guitar player David Labrie who wanted to play with John Mayer was the bass player and then Travis McNabb who's played with everybody from The The to Sugarland. Land um, Travis was the drummer it was a those were the guys that took those songs I was still just writing on acoustic guitar, Greg but those are the guys that took that song into another area and, and I, it, it really was Struggleville was all about that it, it, to me chronologically the logical record following Killing Floor would have been Blister Soul it mm-hmm. sounds more like the mm-hmm. next connection where Struggleville sounds almost like this detour somewhere else and it was because I loved the chemistry of that band even though on some days when I listened to that record I realized man they, they probably could have used another singer they could have used Joe Cocker they needed a rock singer with a big old gravelly voice I I felt like the songs had gotten to a place where they were almost like out of my range. Not necessarily, you know, in terms of just you know the upper register, but just in terms of the the feel of the voice. You know, there were songs on there like "Welcome to Struggleville" and "Glory in the Dream" that I think I slayed on. Aftermath. Oh, I think you did That's too. The... That's
0: what I was going to say. I thought th- your emotional uh, approach to Struggleville. And, well, yeah, those two. I mean, those, I'm glad you mentioned those because I think you did absolutely slay those two songs.
1: Yeah, but there were other songs on there that I think you know might have been you know they were very into the New Orleans kind of um, you know funk vibe um, you know bands like the Funky Meters and uh, uh, the Neville Brothers those guys all the three of them they were very into that sort of sound and they brought that sound into to Vigilantes of Love it's very very groove oriented uh, and I love it for that reason and I think it, it it registered but you know you know you you asked about me you know I was I was crafting songs. For, you know, three or four of them on a record because Capricorn needed a single. We needed we needed a three or four minute song that was going to make it into the charts. And I did that. And the whole thing pretty much went to... We were doing 200 shows a year on, 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 in a van, just four guys in a van, and we were playing just... The worst places. You, I wrote liner notes to the new Audible sigh, and I was saying, you know, on most nights, you know, we were playing on, on PAs that could have been uh, engineered by Fisher-Price. You know, they just weren't very good clubs. We didn't have the connections. We didn't have good booking. So we were just out there. You know, you could only romanticize, like, wow, we're out there playing rock and roll. We're playing our songs, our music, our record, and we're playing in front of 40 people you know we we didn't have the hookups to get in front of a bigger band to go out and open for you know Wilco or Sunvolt those were bands we were actually being compared to but we could not get inside the ranks of those inner circles, and that was my, that was the other education for me as I realized, wow, you can write songs great songs all day long till the cows come home, but unless there 's somebody in the managerial or the label position kind of looking out for you and, and, and grooming you and moving you through the conduits onto something bigger, onto something bigger. You're going to be stuck in the same van with the same guys playing the same clubs year after year, and it's just going to all go belly up. And and that's exactly what happened. It really was by the time we put out Audible Sigh, it was top five in England that year. Um, But the record did very little here in the States. We had, and I'll shut up after this because I know you want to ask some questions. We did have this we had the best fans in the world. They were so verbal, and they were so word of mouth about this band from Athens. You've got to see them. And I think, I mean, I saw some of those Americana bands that band, that um, uh, magazines like No Depression were writing about during that time, and they were good, and I bought those records. Uh, but I, I think VOL was equally good, and in some ways, as far as a live band went, I think we could have blown them off the stage. Uh, we were really... We had that post-punk energy going on, and uh, and, and I know that sounds competitive, but I'm just saying I knew what was out there, and I knew what we were capable of and what we could have done. We had the songs. We had the band. This is all culminating in in records like, you know, Roof of the Sky and Audible Sigh. These were post-Capricorn records uh, because that deal went belly up in 96. Seven, I guess, and we immediately went into the studio and recorded sixteen songs. Roof of the Sky sold ten or twelve thousand records right out of the truck, which was a pretty big feat back then. Um, and and you know, I thought, well, you know, maybe there's another chance. Uh, but it, it just didn't happen. Audible Side was the last, kind of the last hurrah. We made a record with Buddy Miller, who was no slouch then. I mean, mm. he was star for Emmy Lou Harris and Steve Earle. Uh, we had Steve Earle's drummer on the record since we were between drummers. We had guest artists like Phil Madeira, who's an incredible keyboard player. Julie Miller singing backup on some things. And these, But really, the, the central element of it was just the four guys. It was VOL. It was Ken Hudson, Jake Bradley, Kevin Hoyer, and myself. And that that was just not enough. Once again, we we were just on a very small indie label that really couldn't put it across. Um, Things are a little bit different now, pretty much post um, 9-11. I think, you know, that the whole industry, when it went belly up, I think you saw a different dynamic taking place. Um, major labels were scurrying and scrapping to find, you know, some way to kind of hold on to their games, but they certainly weren't signing bands like us. We were always good to sell, you know, twenty, twenty five thousand records, but they wanted bands that were selling two hundred to two hundred and fifty thousand records and we were not that bad. I don't think it had anything to do with the quality of the work or the intensity of the songs. I think it had to do with just being in the right conduit with the right PR people and, you know, the right manager that was putting you on the horde tour. You probably remember the horde tours mm-hmm. back in the we just we just never really found that um, that little inner circle or that little sweet spot. But you know we we played lots of little crap hole clubs and lots of people still talk about you know those gigs. But for me it really was just kind of reading the writing on the wall. I mean you don't make 12 records and then look back on it and say wow we're we're not really very far down the path and we should be much further. The ink the press was always you know four and five stars. So why are we not why are we not breaking big? You know, I think a lot of people,
0: fun. having seen you live during that period, I think a lot of people were just scratching their head. What you're talking about, though, was a period where you watched. I mean, guys like John Prine and Todd Rundgren having to make their own records out of their basements, and you know, that is had, true. They had massive hits and track records, and still couldn't get a label anymore. You know, so it was really that's true. So when you're yeah. a band that's not done, has not got that uh, that cachet of past hits and stuff, and you're trying to break through, it's, it's a very it was a very difficult time. And, yeah. uh, but it was frustrating, I'm sure, as a band, and I, I guess, um, you know, what I was talking about, that was 70 records ago, almost, you know, or 60-something. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it was about 70
1: records
0: ago. Yeah, and I, that's what I was going to kind of get to, and, and a couple other things, but how do you think, uh, now you, I know you've always been pretty prolific in terms of cranking songs out, Um but has your approach to songwriting changed, or are you still just yeah. sitting down your guitar, or what are you doing different now?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, the, the approach has, I guess the, the motivation has changed considerably, because like I said, back then I was trying to craft, you know, 12, 14-song records, uh, Greg, that were, you know, more on the commercial side of things. And then all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, you know, all these people who you've been kind of, quote, working for, whether they were labels or managers or whatever, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You don't need their, quote, permission to do what you do and be what you are, so I just thought, well, I'm just going to write whatever I want to. And the first things that came up were, you know, acoustic kind of songs on uh, on a two track machine. Uh, I would grab, you know, folks and go into, uh, you know, different little configurations. The solo first solo records like Fetal Position and Lock It Full of Moonlight, they were still recorded in Athens with a lot of the same musicians that I'd used in the past, but to me, they felt more like. They just felt more honest. Like I was burying my heart a little bit more, probably because I knew what that heart actually looked like. Um, you know, there's there's nothing like, uh, you know, poverty and and heartache to kind of bring out a different side, of of your writing. And I I think in the in the past, the early records that you've mentioned, like the first seven or eight records that we did for a major label, Capricorn was sort of a major minor label. That then we were back to indie status again. This is like you know again 2001. I think there was a, you know, uh, still maybe trying just a little too hard to, you know, gain the support of radio, gain the support of, you uh, know, national press, and all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, that is an illusion, Bill. You just write what you want to write, and I, I've I've done that ever since. Um, so,
0: has has aging changed your approach to songwriting in any way?
1: Yeah, it, I mean, obviously, being older makes makes you wiser. You know, you start focusing on the things that you want to say, and you know that that's we're, we're in a, a a cultural context now that you know the culture that you're living in, the day and age, the the zeitgeist of your day, the zeitgeist of the year, or the decade. That that informs you know some of what I write. It's not completely internal. You know, there's a a kind of taking the pulse of of where we're at as a country, as a people, uh, and and then letting that sort of you know have a have some. Uh, say so let that be part of the conversation so to speak as you're writing a song
0: well i know one thing at least i i am assuming you, you, you agree with me on this your your guitar chops have gotten a lot better and they, and i know the new out the new album they're very much more textured than they have on, on most of your recent albums i was listening to uh, world's tip jar and i thought the guitar work oh. on that was really really substantial man i really that was fine
1: a number of people have said that I am not ever going to be a flashy, you know, player like, a, you know, what clapping or anything like that, but I can come up with good parts. I hear melodies, and one of the things I've wanted to capture on the record since you know, we moved out here to New Mexico seven years ago. It, it's a very hermit-like existence for us. Really. We live in a very small farming community. It's a lot of organic farmers. We're right off the Rio Grande, so there's something very romantic and majestic about it. I wake up every morning and look out the front door, and there are the Rocky Mountains. I mean, we're in the Rockies. Snow on the peaks. It's very inspiring. I thought, well, you know what? I, there's not a lot of musicians around here that I know who would, you know, approach my songs the way I'd want to approach hockey. You just learn how to play the guitar better, and you... I've added lap steel to... uh um, you know, the uh, uh, the quotient now of being able to play that uh, bass, I was never a great bass player, but now I think I'm an adequate bass player, at least for what I'm doing. So I just, I do all this stuff. The cool thing that I keep hearing from some of the critics on this record is that I know you're playing all the instruments, but it does sound like there's a band in the room and everybody's got their personality in the instrument and i like that because that's that's not anything that i was trying to do directly greg but it just kind of came out of it. it's like wow that's cool so it does sound like a band it doesn't just sound like one guy playing all the instruments so that that to me has been the highest praise on this last record um, rags of absence
0: has, has living in new mexico kind of changed you as an artist and a person
1: yeah, it has. It has. I I'd, I'd say in some ways it's been uh, you know an elating time, and in other ways it's been depressing. We don't have a lot of friends out here. It's a very, uh, it's a small, small community. There's like maybe a thousand. We live near Taos, but in the area that we live in, there's like maybe I don't know, eight hundred to nine hundred people. Um, there are, people are friendly, but we're kind of we kind of miss the community. Again, remember we came out of a out of a college community, out of a college scene, uh, you know, where you could always you know walk down you know, Washington Street and, and hit one of the uh the indie bars in Athens and, you know, you know, make new friends. It was always there. That's been lacking for about seven years now. But the other variable that we've excised from the equation is I have not really felt like getting back on the road again Um, and touring incessantly because it just seemed like it was coming up uh, with very little, you know, the plus column very often. I mean, we come back maybe making a little money, but for the most part, I'd be having to sell it. You might know this. I'd have to sell a guitar to make rent for two months. Um, And I just got tired of that sort of ritual. I just thought, well, you know, let's just stay off the road and make records and see if people will... People will buy them, you know. Um, and so I I think that first started with, uh, you know, Dolorosa and Winnowing. Those are desert records. There have probably been about seven or eight of them now. Um, so so far, so good. I, I don't know that that's the uh, catch-all, but you know, or that's the silver bullet, so to speak, that solves the problem. I guess eventually we'll have to get back on the road and do some tours. Um, and I don't mind that. I, I really prefer the house concert context, just because these songs are a different kind of song now. They're not in your face like the earlier songs were. There's a lot more subtlety and I think artistry about the songs. And I think house concerts are sort of the uh, uh, the arena where they work the best. You know, as opposed to trying to you know put them across in a rock club with twenty people talking. Um, I, I don't enjoy that. I've, I've kind of paid my dues, and I don't really, I don't really like that very much anymore. So,
0: you've written some pretty amazing stuff on the concept of loneliness. But how does how does not having that sense of community? Because you know, in any faith tradition, you talk about community is sort of an important part of it. Um, How do you guys kind of connect? Is this like long distance connection with friends, or how do how do you connect with since you're out there kind of isolated? Yeah,
1: there's social media, but it all that all feels kind of like you know hit and run and pretty spliced and fractured. So you know, Mariah and I, you know, we cling to each other. We have a lot of fun. Um, We've been married 11 years. We're going on 12 now, and um, it's it's been great. I mean, she's a musician and an artist herself, so she sees life life with that kind of temperament, and you know, through those eyes of faith. We've we you know, I mean, you mentioned aging. I mean, we've we've lost friends. I mean, everybody. Has at this point. I'm, I'm 60 years old. There are people that 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 should still be here, but they're not. They left the party too early. And you, you know, you've you've noticed in some of my liner notes that that often you know loss, the themes of loss and grieving are, are very prominent. Um, uh, they're more prominent than ever. Uh, some of that's individual, but some of that is also, you know, what have we lost as a people have we've, as we've moved this, this experiment of democracy into, a, you know, a different place? What does that look like? All of that stuff is just something, and I write probably, Mariah pointed this out, she said, you know, you probably write because that's sort of like sitting in a room with a friend, and, and you have this conversation with this thing called a song that's taking shape, and, you know, you're, you're kind of hammering it into some kind of, of, of person. You know, you get really connected to the songs and and they're you and and she said I love that about you and I love that about your songs but I I think you know it it would be cool if we did have a community and you were able to sit and talk with other artists about you know how they approach it sometimes Facebook is pretty good for that sort of thing or other you know little social media conduits but I I tend to not I tend to not use it so much so when
0: when you're not writing or or working on something what music do you listen to Are, are there any new artists that interest you or is it mostly older stuff who do you listen to
1: you know that's a good question. You know it's really funny because I like music that actually gives me space to think. And and I don't I don't know if you'll follow this. I don't listen to that much new Americana music anymore. I mean I'll drop in and and listen to a new Drive By Truckers record or a Jason Isbell. You know I, I'm a huge Sun fan, fan, uh, so I'll listen to what Jay's doing. But the really new stuff, you know, I'll go over to the No Depression site, uh, Greg, and listen. And you know it's kind of like well. I'll uh, it sounds nice, but it doesn 't sound like anything that 's groundbreaking or anything i haven 't heard other people do you know way better um, but the uh, and I know that sounds arrogant, but I mean you know come on i mean i 'm seventy plus records into this thing, and it 's not my first rodeo, so I have a right to that opinion um, but the stuff I listen to during the daytime is very old you know, 19, late 50s jazz, whether it's, you know, Miles Davis or Coltrane or uh, Bill Evans, people like that. And I listen to it because, one, it's instrumental, and two, it has a space in it that allows me to to, to think. Rock and roll is, to me, it, it's very demanding music. Not necessarily demanding to play, but it, it is demanding on your attention. It wants all of you at that moment for every second of the song, you know, from beginning to end, and that's cool, I, I dig that, I, I listen to that more when I'm, like, driving, because I, I want the stimuli of great rock and roll, but when I'm just, like, around the house, you know, kind of listening, it, it's probably old-school combo jazz, you know, like I said, Kind of Blue gets, I probably listen to that record five times a week, you know, Love Supreme probably three times a week, you know, I love the space in those songs, in, the, in those in those recordings. Um, And you mentioned the thing about, you know, the guitars, you know, there's a lot of conversation going on, like on on, uh, most of the tracks on uh, Rags of Absence, for example, there's probably five to seven guitars on every song, and they all have little parts of the conversation to play, and I've started to wonder if maybe it's because I've been listening to a lot of old, old school jazz over the last few years, where, you know, the horns are speaking to the trumpets or speaking to the piano or speaking to the double bass, there's a conversation going on in the room. And that is something that I think i've I've brought into my version of you know Americana rock and roll now
0: i I'm just I'm really just just digging that your the, the records you're talking about I think I've owned in every format from vinyl oh, to really? eight track to cassette to you know <laughs> c d to download I mean you know, I know.
1: they never get old. there's a reason they why they're beautiful
0: and I put on you mentioned Bill Evans when I'm really in a place where I'm writing or if I get a little blocked, I put on piece piece and just let it play in a loop until I get out of it. Oh yeah.
1: Do you like Time Remembered?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Golly, day, that's amazing! I can't tell sometime if I'm listening to you know Eric Satie or Debussy or Bill Evans because yeah. he's got these little phrases that are just so French impressionistic, you
0: know. And I don't know if the story's true. You've seen the story about Peace Piece that it was done at the end of an 18-hour recording session. Everybody else left, and the, the engineer was still in there, and he was just piddling at the piano.
1: I don't know this story. Yeah, that's the story
0: they say that he was just at the piano and he was, they were wrapped up after 18 hours of recording and the engineer was in there and heard him starting on something and he just turned the thing on and he just played the whole thing in and took the little first piddling out and that ended up being piece-piece.
1: Oh, my, I had no idea. I do not know that story. I'll have to listen to that with those ears on. And that's incredible.
0: Well, what other art forms speak to you or influence your work, Bill?
1: You know, I, uh, I'm i a huge fan of, uh, of the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. You know he he can go uh, you know political in some of his stuff, but very surreal and dreamy. Uh, I, I like uh work a lot. I'm a big fan of uh, he's he's kind of labeled as a Christian writer, but I think he's he's more out there than that in some ways. Frederick Beikner, you've
0: mm-hmm. I'm, you know, absolutely.
1: Uh, and I, I grew up, you know, kind of you know dipping the uh, the toe in the water of, uh, of mysticism. I grew up Catholic. I was raised as a Catholic, but Thomas Merton, you know, is somebody mm-hmm. I I come back to frequently. Um, so those those guys, as far as authors I'm trying to think. Um, let's see here. I'm looking, look, gazing up at my library to see exactly what's going on there. Uh, a lot of the paintings, actually, of the Southwest, there's a fellow out here. Um, I mean, he's dead now, but a guy named Maynard Dixon uh, and some of the other... Uh, uh, painters who were west most of them were west coast um everybody knows you know folks like Dorothea Lange uh or, or George o'keefe you know they were new york people who came out west uh and i i fallen in love with the southwest ever since i was a boy scout you know i, I you know saw all these either books or comic books or pamphlets or brochures on you know the great american southwest and i was a history major in college and just became more and more infatuated with it and we tour through the Southwest all the time, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. The only problem, Greg, when you're touring, you're never a tourist. You never get to stop and see the Grand Canyon for more than five seconds because you're on the way to somewhere else. So when Mariah and I did get married and came out here, I thought, you know what, let's, we'd finish a tour. We were in Albuquerque. This was like uh, seven years ago. I thought, you know, let's just get crazy and Craigslist a house and see what what, what we come up with. And sure enough, you know, we found something in Santa Fe and we took it. I said, let's just stay here a year and see what happens. And it turned out to be, that was, you know, seven years ago. So it, it, uh, it turned out to be a great thing, you know, just to be immersed in this culture. And the great thing in a lot of ways is if you're out here because of the, you know, the Latino population it's the first time I've ever been in the minority. And that's a huge thing. You know, when you grew up with the privileges, so to speak, of being, you know, middle class, you know, white kind of kid, you know, which is, that's the upbringing I had. Now, all of a sudden, it's like I get to experience and talk with people who have been... Um, you know, kind of beat down and kept on the curb all their lives, you know, uh, and, and it's great. I remember the first day I walked into church up here, you know, and I thought, wow, this is great. The Mass was said in Spanish, and the hymns were sung in Spanish. It's like, wow, Bill, this is fantastic. Get used to this. And I, I love it, you know.
0: So and I want to get back to that in a second. I was, I was kind of leading into your music journey, has been a long one, so has your faith journey. Um, is there anything you wish you'd known 25, 30 years ago that sort of you're more informed about spiritually now when it comes to God?
1: Um, you know, most of my, you know, I mentioned that I was raised Catholic. Most of my, you know, I tell people, you know, my rearing and the and, and the things of the Lord came from being in a little small house church in Athens, Georgia, as a student for a few years. And since I stayed in the community for 30 years, I went to a little small house church called University Church. It had uh, independent church, a mission church status, but the man who ran the church was a friend of mine named Dan Orme. Um, he's no longer with us, but Dan was the pastor of this little house church called the University Church. And on given Sunday, we were you know 30 to 40 strong um like i said he was a presbyterian minister but had been given mission church status to basically reach out to the university community so the um the makeup the constituency was a lot of grad students people thinking a lot of artists people thinking ideas you know conversing about this stuff it was the incubator for thinking about everything from life and death to art and you know are interfacing with politics, this and that. So that that was, I, I have no misgivings. It was all great. You know, I feel like I, I, I look back on it and feel like, well, you know, God knew what I needed. You know, he put me there even though, you know, I had no idea what was going on half the time. But, you know, he, he, he looked after me. He put me in the right place. Vigilantes of Love in some ways was born out of that church, not because every band member was in there, but because all the ideas that incubated in my little skull came out of a a. a you know, trying to put this this idea of you know God intersecting with this world in the person of Christ, and seeing what does that mean for all of us. You know,
0: has your view of God though changed in any way since then? I mean, how how has that informed now? You know, that was a long I, time. You
1: know, I, I I probably you know have have you know looked over the years. You know. It, I, I guess, well, I'm, I'm trying to put this across so it doesn't sound heretical, but it's going to sound heretical anyway. I, I I tend, over the years now, I think, to be more of a universalist. Not universalism, necessarily, but more of a universalist, thinking that God is going to get the last word in, in our lives. We are, so many of us, walking around, you know, broken and beat down, and we're walking wounded. Who knows the reasons why we do half the stuff we do? And somebody said, well, you know, what about Hitler? It's like, you know what, I, I don't have to worry about Hitler. That's God's job. Um, you know, or, or even Donald Trump, that's God's job. Um, it, but, I, but I think that it was a very big cross, that God's love and compassion is a very big love and compassion, and that I think that he gets the last word. He doesn't just create to cast us off or, you know, turn us over to, you know, a roaster in hell or anything like that. I, I, I think those were things that might be added into scripture to, I don't know, cajole or, you know, motivate us or whatever. And I don't have any proof on that. You know, somebody said, well, you're, you're sounding really, you know, neo orthodox and heretical. But I don't really think a lot about that sort of stuff, uh, Greg. I, I'm a songwriter primarily. You can hear me wrestle with it in the songs. I mean, it's clearly there. Um, but it, it's not like it's an agenda. I, I'm not trying to convince anybody. I'm trying to wrestle with the things that feel incongruous in this world. And I, I, I think I love loving God is going to end up surprising us just like, you know, little kids getting ice cream for the first time we we're going to be squealing with you know heaven's joy one day that's what i think uh and and it's and and we're going to be free of everything that ever dragged us down made us dark made us do things that we regret we're going to be washed of it and and i think that holds true for everybody that's that's truly kind of my my growing up into the thing now i know there's 99 of your listeners that are going to phone in and say that guy's a heretic and it's like well so be it
0: well actually believe it or not uh you, you look back over you're your your you're, you're probably going to be closer to orthodox than most of my guests so far, Bill.
1: So, All right.
0: Yeah, um, I, I guess that was why I was going to add. One of the questions I've asked a lot of the folks that I have, you know, um, talked to on here, do you, do you think there is a literal hell? I mean, you you grew up, you know, in, a, in an area where hell was talked about more than anything else, pretty much, if you went to church. Oh, yeah. Oh, more yeah. Than, mm.
1: Yeah, I don't, I, do I think there's a literal hell? Yeah. I, You know, I don't know. I mean, there seems to be, you know, uh, there seems to be things in Scripture that indicate there is some kind of... Because you, you can't separate the concept of hell from punishment. What I can not understand, I think, is the incongruity of eternal punishment for temporal sins. I don't understand that. And, and I think there might have been... I mean, I, I think a lot of scholars, you know, again, you know, it depends on where you get your information from, have said, you know, there might have been things put in in Christ's mouth or things that the Apostles that were put in their mouths and their writings because it gave it authenticity, you know. Um, and, and so these, these stories are these—I mean, they were working it out like we were. There were conjectures. I mean, you can look at early church history, and I've read enough about it to know that, you know, there were some theologians that were labeled as heretics, and 50 years, 100 years later, they were labeled, you know, doctors of the church. I mean, come on. So that, that, to me, that that suggests that it's, it's men and, you know, unfortunately not enough women being, you know, early on because they were so kept at bay um, or, you know, suspicious or something— um you know they they were viewed with suspicion, that whole gender thing is another issue we could go down, but it just seems to me like there's there is there is room for you know, the spirit leading and guiding and, and maneuvering the church and its thought about these things through the the conduits and passages of time. And and that's where I, I came to, you know, when I was a young Christian, you know, it was it was very much like you just said, you know, it's like you've got this view of hell and that's that's what you that's that's what you get. It didn't go any further than that. See there's the proof text for it and, you know, God said it I believe in so there it's done. And it takes a while, it's a fearful thing to sort of start maneuvering a little bit outside that, and then walk off the path a little bit, and then look back at the path you run and say, well, you know what, that just doesn't make sense anymore to me. So it, there's a little bit of, of courage involved in, in stepping forward. But then you find out again, you know, there might be, you know, two or three other people, oh, by the way, you know, this theologian who lived back then in the 300 A.D., you know, the, and, and you know, they believed in sort of a universal love of God, too. You know, you realize you're not alone anymore. But you know, some, sometimes that information, Greg, is not not really told you, and it, it it's it's kind of kept that way because the people who are sort of trying to control you don't want you to know that there's been discrepancies or there have been, you know, people wrestling with these these deeper issues.
0: Well, even the scripture itself. I mean, I remember uh, at one point several years ago, somebody saying, "Well, you know, what did Jesus mean when he said I'm going to reconcile everything to myself?" You know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you've made it pretty clear. I wanted to ask you one other question about that, but I want to follow it up too. Um,
1: it's hard to ramble it, on that. I really wasn't. No, that no, that was, no, about, that was fine. Nobody's ever asked me that question before. To tell you the
0: truth, oh, huh, that's interesting. Well, it's, it seems particularly after in the last you know six or eight years that hell has kind of risen back to the top of. Do you think so or not? But is the Bible still important uh, part of your spiritual experience now?
1: Read it every day, every morning. Pray some psalms. Pray for uh, all the people on a sick list. I've got about 15 people on a sick list. Pray for them individually. Pray for them at night. My wife and I have a very active, uh, you know, prayer life together. Um, and yeah, I read scriptures all the time. I'm a big fan of Eugene Peterson's translation of the New Ta- or the, of the Scriptures in general, but a lot of the New Testament. Peterson was a, a translator. They put out this book called The Message years yep. ago. And uh, I, I find it to be incredibly invigorating the way he's approached it. People are going to say it's a paraphrase. I don't think even he would say that. I think he would say, well, it's something between a word-for-word uh, rendition of Greek and Aramaic, which were the original tongue scriptures written in Hebrew, obviously, and, and, and something that's a little bit more like the spirit of, you know, Paul or Peter or, or any of the Gospel writers. It's a little bit more in keeping with what was actually being said. And what was being conveyed, not just a word-for-word translation, which starts to feel like a skeleton after a while. It just starts to read like a skeleton. But, you know, lo and behold, that's what most people get, you know.
0: Well, yeah, we're not going to go down that road. <laughs> the uh, He also, uh, either he's somebody probably doing it with some of his writings, although some of it sounds like it's coming from him, has a pretty serious wisdom-filled Twitter uh, feed, uh, Eugene Peterson does. so. Um,
1: Is that right? I know, did not know that.
0: The... Um, you have, you know, you have. I read. I read
1: all the right people. You do.
0: You have always <laughs> been very vocal about your faith, and and you know, um, and, and yet over the years, man, you have had some major struggles financially and other things. How have you maintained hope in all this? Because one of the things, the reason this podcast I started it was to talk to people who had a, had some sort of uh, faith experience and still maintain hope in light of all the things that are going on in the world and things going on in our personal lives. How have you maintained hope, Bill, when you had to go sell another guitar when you didn't want to? How how has your faith kind of played into that?
1: Well, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say there are some days that, you know, the, the, uh, you know the, the idea that God might not be there or it might just be some dream, you know, but, you know, it hasn't crossed my mind, but it hasn't, it, it may have crossed my mind, but it's never entered my heart in the sense that I, and I think, well, that that's just it. God's not there. I have met people who said, well, you know, my mother died, and I don't believe anymore. And and I, it's like, well, why why, why was that? I, I don't. I, I honestly don't understand. I mean, both of my parents are dead, so I can actually reference something like that experience. But it never caused me to lose faith. It's like, well, yeah, dust to dust. I mean, how is that? You know, I, I knew it when I was seven years old i was I was weeping for people hadn 't even died yet. I remember one night i was I had just finished homework and I was going to bed and I remember we were, we were busy with my grandmother and i I was seven years old, and I remember clearly this very overwhelming, dark feeling that, wow, one day she's not going to be here, your grandmother, and then one day your mom and dad are going to be here, and I was, it it, it has been kind of in some ways, I don't know, I, I spent the next, you know, 10 years looking for anybody, you know, friend, peer, anybody who was, you know, thinking, you know, about these issues of mortality and, and temporality, I didn't find anybody and then, thank God, you know, I came across a creative writing instructor who was, you know, steering a class down, you know, particular writers. It was everything from, you know, romantics, neoromantics, um, existentialists. We were reading all of this stuff. And- yeah. Um, no, I, I, had this, I had this creative writing instructor who, you know, finally steered me toward, you know, writers who were wrestling with these sort of things. And it, it was a breath of fresh air. Um, to me, the, to know that there were other people out there dealing with these sorts of things. Cause I, you know, I, I guess the picture is, was I, was I a very depressed kid growing up? No, not really, but I was a very troubled kid and not feeling like I could find answers to any of this sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, and, and at some point as we age, I mean, the, the concept of grace begins to take on proportions we never dreamed of when we were young.
1: Yeah, I've noticed that on your Facebook page. The things that you post, I, I read what you put up there. I mean, it's it's encouraging to not feel alone.
0: Oh man! And I, and
1: I think that's the 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 key to most of it. It, it seems to me that that Christ Himself welcomed the outcasts, no matter what they were. They were they were you know outcast of of the intellect or outcast of uh, you know society or whatever. They all were welcomed into the circle. And here's the phrase. And you've heard it a million times, but it's so true. You mentioned the word grace. Grace accepts everyone where they're at, and and it hopes for the the better angels of the natures to to show up. And for some of us, it's going to take a lifetime. Some of us, you know, you know, like myself, we're slow learners. You know, these ideas of you know compassion and kindness and, and respecting diversity. Those are slow concepts for some of us to to wrap our brains around. But that's what grace does. And and I, like I said, I'm. I've become more of an active uh, prayer person over the years, probably over the last 15 years than ever. And if, if I had to point to one thing that's kind of gotten me through, you know, the dark times, like having to sell a guitar, I mean, poverty is just what it is. I mean, it's just, it's, it's not a big deal. I, you just learn how to get by on very little. Uh, I didn't even have, you know, medical coverage for 15 years. And it's only been, you know, recently because of, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act that I had anything like access to a doctor.
0: Me and you um, both.
1: Yeah, there you go. So you you know the territory, yeah. yeah. But but grace accepts people where they're at, you know, and it hopes for the best and that's what I want to be about. Um you know, because I feel like those that that I feel like grace has been extended to me a hundredfold. You know, throughout life and I know you feel the same way.
0: Yeah. And I know, you know, you're talking about not feeling alone. I think your music, I just want to say something hopefully encouraging. I I can tell you there was a period a number of years ago that uh Mm-hmm. Your song Sick of It All kind of helped me get through some really tough times because that that uh, it was like okay I'm not the only one feeling this way you know. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And that, no, I, I write from the gut. Yeah,
0: yeah. That, that was not a, a not a song anybody's going to sing as a worship song in church but
1: it was Yeah, tough. it's not going to happen there. No, well, let me there's ask, other people This is kind of I don't know. Other usually,
0: people do but... Yeah, I don't usually ask questions. This is a little odd but tell me a little bit about the song Two Finger Wave. There's something about that song that resonates. I really really like that song on the new record.
1: Yeah. We, I mean, you, you know, the gesture, you've seen it all in yeah. the South. Yeah. You're just driving yeah. down the road and here's some stranger and, you know, they don't, they don't wave at you. They just raise the hand off the steering wheel and give you the peace sign. You know, yeah. so I just thought, you know, I was looking for something a little bit more because I think rags of absence is kind of a, it, it, it's a dark record, but it's a, it's a, it's a soulful record in it a is. lot of ways, but I wanted a song that was going to be, you know, just a little bit more lighthearted, um, and and two finger wave was it. And I, I ran into the to the my studio was a little separated from the house. We're still in the same little kind of compound out here, but the studio's over across the way. So I ran into the house. I said, I've got the happy song I <laughs> walked in the front door. I said, I've got the happy song for the record. She said, Oh yeah, really? So I, I walked her over and played it for her. She said, That's really great.
0: It is a great song. It is a great song. And I don't know if you
1: picked it up, but the, the intro and the middle section Da, 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 da.
0: that's that's a nod to the beach boys yeah yeah and i i don't get tired of the beach boys let's that's great talking yeah, about people i'm still i feel like i'm in a minority even among people in my age group that never quite tapped into it but just the, the the just the sonic nature of a lot of the stuff they did uh i just i don't ever get over that either i can put that on that's that doesn't require this like you're talking about rock and roll intensity there's something about beach boys music you can put on in the background and really just do whatever you're doing
1: That is true. That is true. I I agree. Yeah, when I say rock and roll intensity, I'm not talking about, you know, like, you know, Death Leopard. Right. That's a different animal. It's just that, you know, I mean, even a good Beatles song, Strawberry Fields Forever. I was thinking the Beatles when you
0: said that. You have to be engaged sometimes listening to that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can listen to the 15 different versions of Strawberry Fields Forever, and it's going to pull you in no matter what. It's like, that is the craziest, most amazing song, you know? It's just like, you just find new things in it every time, so... I don't know. that. To me, that's what I mean about it being, you know, it, it commands your attention in a good way, in a good way, but you've got to be ready for it, and you've got to give it your full attention because it's not going to take no for an answer. Um, but when I'm around the house, like, and, and you, you're right, a beach voice is something you could kind of put in the background, and, and it, it won't intrude too much.
0: And I think Brian Wilson is never going to be remembered as anything less than maybe as good a musical ear as we ever had, <laughs> I think. Mm-hmm. Um, tell for people who, who have not listened to maybe they've just they listen to your old stuff and haven't listened to your new stuff or they know your new stuff tell people about your, your bandcamp site and what kind of music's there and what kind of, what all people can find there
1: yeah the bandcamp site has got all the vigil I, they, they, here's the preface on that a lot of artists never owned their own music they never owned their records because the labels, you know, owned it in perpetuity and I I didn't I never had that problem. When Capricorn Records went south, we got the albums back. When uh, numerous other little small labels went south, the, there's only one record that we don't have. And that was and they just won't they won't cough it up. It's a small label in Nashville. We made a record called Summershine and great, it's a very trippy. Yeah. It is. It's a very trippy pop indie pop record. Uh, kind of neo-psychedelic, and I, I love that stuff. I mean, there's, th- that's the other split side of me. As much as I love Americana renderings, I, I was a huge fan of, of you know, the British sound, um, especially the sort of psychedelic period. Uh, and I, I think our West Coast version, you know, like the Birds and bands like that, even Jefferson Airplane, I love that stuff, too. I grew up listening to it thinking this is great. I love this music. It's intense. It commits. I mean, Lord, there was... There were very few bands that were committed to, you know, bringing down the regime like Jefferson Airplane was. Um, you know, I'm not saying they were all great musicians, but, you know, that's the that was the zeitgeist of the age. And the kids, very smart kids, you know, coming from very, you know, uh, well-to-do families, you know, they showed up in Berkeley and, you know, they, they formed groups and they showed up in the Bay Area and they, they formed groups. And I, I love that period, that West Coast pop psychedelia um, era of american music but the uh, bandcamp site is is full of um it, it's full of the old Capricorn titles it's full of um all of the old so, uh, the solo records that that i made as soon as um As soon as the band thing was over, uh, and it's full of the Americana records that have continued to show up. I did a segment of records. I think there might be 20, 21 of them up there. They're mostly EPs, although some of them are full albums, called WPA. That Acrostic Sounds stands for Works Progress Administration. Everybody knows that was one of Roosevelt's. Uh, you know, game-changer plans to sort of recover uh, American worker dignity during the Great Depression. And, and, you know, we built things like, you know, little small weekend projects like building dams and stuff like that.
0: <laughs> and also you writers and, and musicians and stuff were part That's of that. That's true. That's and, true.
1: And I just found that out, you know, by reading Maynard Dixon. I, I had forgotten that the WPA employed people like Maynard Dixon and Dorothea Lang, and, you know, like you said, writers. Carl Reiner. Whatever. Carl Reiner was actually yep. part. Yep. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, yeah, everybody was, you know, needing needing some help, and the government was there. Um, but anyway, WPA was the, was the uh, moniker that I used to put out these. They're little four track records, is what they are. They sound great, but they are people that like more of an acoustic rendering with, you know, very little filigree around it, like it might be, you know, two acoustic guitars, a vocal, and Mariah's piano. Uh, th- those are a good place to go, the WPA records. And then the more, you know, uh, elaborate projects as I, as I was able to kind of save some money and buy uh, a little bit bigger recording rigs, not necessarily huge rigs, but just something I could do 16 tracks on, uh, uh, Rags of Absence. The last two records, uh, uh, let's see, um, Slow Trauma and and then this new one, Rags of Absence, were done on a 24-track machine. So you know they're they're all, they're all there and they all stream so you can get into each of those and listen.
0: Well, I was going to say yeah if if they want people want to support you it's best to get their records directly from you right.
1: I think so I I think that's the way to go I I stay away from I, I've tried to take down all of my stuff I mean go to the Bandcamp site it's just music dot Bandcamp dot com. I've tried to stay away from you know things like iTunes and Spotify just because they don't pay artists right they just don't I mean. You know, you you remember the story that David Lowry from Cracker put out about four years ago now that he had recognized that there was like a million and a half hits of one of his songs on Spotify or something, and he got a check for like three hundred bucks.
0: I saw it's that. like really
1: yeah. a million and a half hits, and they give you three hundred dollars. That's all you get out of it. And I, I don't. I think maybe he's one of the more major artists, but you know, obviously I, I don't think Dylan or Springsteen are hurting, but. You know, people who were more in the indie circuit, you know, like David and, you know, they, they, those guys need. Uh, but I, I've pulled all my stuff as much as I can off of off of those uh, streaming sites.
0: Right. Well, the last couple things I want to ask you, there's two things I ask everybody. And I'm going to ask you these two questions next and then we'll right on. Okay. The first one is and this is kind of I, I, did, I should have fit it into an earlier part of the conversation It would have been a little more natural. But I ask everybody, who is Jesus?
1: All right. Oh that's the question.
0: Yeah, that's the question.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I think he's the risen son of God.
0: That's a good answer. I mean, Not honestly. much
1: elaboration there. I okay. mean, you know, yeah, uh, whoever or whatever he is, I don't I don't know that you can Yeah, if there had to be elaboration, I don't know if you can nail it down to just a doctrinal statement, but I think the creeds do a pretty The, the reason why the creeds are lovely is because they're brief. And direct, and they're also poetic, and they leave a lot of room for you know John and Jane Doe to exercise imagination about what that might be. Um, you're, you're not you're not gonna we're not gonna be you know walking into in, into the Lord's heaven, you know, because we got the answer right on the test. We're gonna be walking in because of grace.
0: Next thing, I ask everybody, Bill, what makes you laugh, or what makes you laugh the hardest?
1: <laughs> ah, well, let's see. Questions from interviewers like that make me laugh pretty hard. That's.
0: <laughs> that's, that's well, think about this. What's the hardest you've ever laughed in your life? Then.
1: Oh wow, that's pretty funny. You know, it's interesting. I I get pretty tickled, and you know, because you know, obviously, social media has got all these videos of animals doing, you know, crazy things, you know, or or adults and animals interacting in crazy ways. I think I have cried looking at some of those videos that are up there. Some of them are just incredibly like, how did this happen? The person was there at the right time, and it almost looks like a miracle, you know, that they got, you know, a dog or a horse doing, you know, something. They just caught them doing something. And then, and to me, Mariah and I always have this, this conversation. We, we have a tendency to sort of anthropomorphize every animal there is. I don't know if it comes from, you know, Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or something like that, because we both love Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, you know, and the animals are always, you know, talking or plotting or, you know saving the day or something but i those videos that some people post about animals doing you know crazy things are the funniest things and we'll we'll just laugh for a long long time looking at that stuff
0: well bill what are you working on next what's next
1: Um, I've got I've got about 35 songs written, uh, and they're sort of falling into different categories. So I was thinking, I'm I'm just trying on the idea, Greg. I'm trying on the hat. I I don't know if I'm going to do it this way. You know, we live in such an ADD culture anyway. I I would love to release, you know, a a three-record set, um, but I I don't know if people would actually even listen to it. Um, So the idea of sort of letting it sort of trickle out, you know, 10 or 12 songs at a time is what I kind of fall back to but i had this crazy burst of writing after christmas time and there's like 35 36 songs written some of them are political i mean it's a huge transition time i think i was a history major in college so i i think we've never quite seen a uh, an administration like this and I, I don't think we've ever seen um you know i'll go ahead and play my cards i don't think we've ever seen a president with this much uh, arrogance and tendency toward bullying Uh, and and also just flat-out incompetent. I don't think we've ever seen anybody like that in the office. If somebody wants to gain saving, they're fine, but that's, you know, I've got the mic now, so to speak. And it, it's it's frightening for a lot of people. Um, it's it's a it's a scary option. And 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 I'll say I'll, pre- I'll I'll also go back and say I was not a huge Obama supporter because I thought he gave too many perks to to corporations bailing out banks and and GM. And I I think it's like look if it's going to fall then let it fall. But you didn't do that. Um, so I, I, you know, my candidate was Bernie Sanders, but I think he was sort of forced to take the curb, but I I think we live in scary times and I think we've never quite seen anything like it. It almost has, you know, an apocalyptic kind of, kind of element to it. Um, I don't want to chase that you know, rabbit too far, but it feels that way on some days. It has just an apocalyptic sort of tenor to it. So anyway, I, I wrote these songs. They're not all political. Some of them are love songs. Some of them are grieving songs. Uh, some of them are very, very just blue-collar Americana kind of things. Um, you know, and They're all written out of my experience, but I like every one of them. I'm usually pretty heavy-handed with my editing, and so I've got these 36 songs, and the question is, is do I just, you know, do I do I, you know, pick three of every category and have a 12-song record? Do I let it all go out at once? Do I have a political record? Do I have, a, you know, a love and loss record? You know, do I, I still don't even know how to do it. So I'm just going to start recording. I'm just going to start recording them one at a time and see where it all goes and, and see what I can, you know, kind of put out there. That'll probably be my, um, you know, my my work for the year. It'll probably take about, you know, four or five months to record a good 35 songs. So,
0: Well, and just because you, you alluded to it, I wanted people to know you have some really nice Christmas music, too, if people haven't heard it. People who do like holiday music need to check
1: that out. Yeah, too. I've recorded. Yeah, it's very incarnational. It's very, uh, you know, spirit of the season. Um, I've gotten like, I think, what, five or six Christmas records now.
0: Yep. I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm a big Christmas music fan, and that was nice to see you doing some original stuff. I enjoyed. it. Man, I have really enjoyed this. It's always good to talk to somebody of my own tribe. And like you said, it's uh, lets us know we're not alone. And uh, talk
1: to you. I talk your ear off. I ramble like no, that's great, did. man. And
0: if, if you're you know when you, if you get on the road or if you're just headed back this way down south, man, let me know and I'll take you to supper somewhere. We'll get together. We will do it. I
1: I, I definitely want to do it, and we will be back that way.
0: Well, it sounds great, man. Appreciate your time, Bill. And I'll talk to you. We'll catch up again soon. Let me know when that good. we decide to do with those records. I will, Greg. Take care. You too, Bill. Thanks, man. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye. I appreciate Bill taking time out from his schedule of recording his a massive number of records. Puts out a lot of good music, too. It's not just quantity. And uh, I was, you know, at times you could tell un- unabashedly uh, uh, appreciative of, of the work Bill's done. And also that he's stayed with it all these years when uh, it would have been easy just to chuck it and get another job. But um When you create art, uh, it needs no justification, but you still need money coming in to pay the bills, as we've talked about before on here. But I do appreciate him talking about music and then working his way into his thoughts on faith and art and and other things. And um, that's one of the things we try to do here on the Thinking God podcast is look for people who have a voice of hope and faith in a world that does not necessarily encourage it sometimes. And I hope you'll join me here again next time for another episode of the Thinking God podcast. And I'm going to conclude today with something a little different. When i have a musician, when I try to use some of their their work, this is a cut from Bill Maloney's new record, The Rags of Absence. It's called The World's.